Hey everyone, back again. Today we're going to start Michel Foucault's third series of lectures from the Collège de France titled The Punitive Society, which took place between 1972 and 1973. Now before jumping into it, hi, I'm David. I explain philosophical texts and ideas and ways to make them accessible to you. So if you're new here, you can go and see my 300 episodes I already have up. You can subscribe and see videos I release every single week, sometimes twice a week, sometimes as videos on YouTube. So if you found this as a podcast, you're going to be able to find it maybe as a video on YouTube. Or if you found this on YouTube, you're going to be able to find just the audio alone on pretty much any podcast platform using all the same names. If you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guineo or on TikTok at theory philosophy. You'll be able to find the links or the titles in the description. If you want to help me out, do all those things I already mentioned, subscribing, liking, sharing, helps me out a lot. If you listen to this on a podcast platform that lets you leave reviews, that would help me out a lot. You can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal, but no pressure to do that. Take care of yourselves first. So here we go. Let's jump into Michel Foucault's The Punitive Society, the third series of lectures from the Collège de France. This is going to be four parts. Part one, what we're doing today, is going to cover chapters one, two, and three. Part two is going to cover chapters four, five, six, part three, chapters seven, eight, nine, and then part four is going to cover chapters 10, 11, 12, 13, plus the short uh, course summary at the end. And I'm going to have this laid out in the description as well, so you can easily see what's going to be covered in each episode. So let's start. Chapter one. He begins by suggesting that just as some previous civilizations in world history uh, were categorized in terms of the ways that they treated their dead, either they cremated their dead or they buried their dead. So there were cremating societies or burying societies. He suggests that we can also categorize societies, and he says this semi-jokingly, we can categorize societies depending upon how they treat people that the society almost wants to be dead. How do they treat criminals? How do they treat people who uh, this social system uh, deems worthy of punishment. Now, this semi-joking statement sets the stage for this entire series of lectures. And the broad theme of these lectures is to think about the way that penal reform transformed in the late 18th century in France and into the early 19th century. And what happened at this time in order for something like the prison as an institutional form of confinement, how the prison became a stand-in for punishment itself, which over the course of human history, at least in recorded human history, uh, is kind of a strange phenomenon. The idea that if somebody does something wrong, we just lock them up somewhere and we just hold them there for 20 years. It's, it's a strange thing because it, you know, it takes resources, uh, people will recommit crimes. You know, this is, we've seen this over and over again. Historically, people have preferred to like punish criminals, punish people who've done wrong by causing physical pain instead, by ostracizing them, sending them out totally. So, you know, it's not your responsibility anymore. So something happened and the entire trajectory of these lectures is to try and capture this transformation at the end of the 18th century where prisons became a suitable form of punishment for criminals. And he's going to show why or give one hypothesis as, or many as to why. 
So to jump back to this idea of discerning or uh, dividing, distinguishing societies based on how they treat people who the society views should be punished, he draws upon the work of Levi Strauss, specifically his test, uh, test his text uh, Tristopic, uh, Tropic, which is. I don't know what the English translation is. I don't know what the official English translation is. It's like sad, the sad tropics. I don't know. That, I didn't look it up. But anyways, tres tropics. So in this text, Lévi-Strauss distinguishes efforts of rehabilitation, societies that try to rehabilitate or within societies, rehabilitation versus assimilation uh, from the neutralization of unsavory people. So if society viewed someone as being a problem, society would try to assimilate or rehabilitate the person. That is to just work them back into social life so that they can be properly uh, socialized as citizens for that society. Now to neutralize in this sense can mean to put to death in a sense, to disarm or to ostracize, where people who are seen as being a threat could just be cast away as well. Um, you know, or they could be disarmed, any possible threat they posed could be taken away from them, or they could just be put to death and then, uh, like, like I said before, ostracized or sent away, which is different from just rehabilitating. Rehabilitating suggests that the person can be fixed, they can be corrected, whereas these other measures that might seem more punitive, and in fact are, I would say, uh, that is being put to death or being disarmed or being ostracized, are more extreme forms that suggest that the person cannot actually fit within that society. However, Foucault has a problem with this. Insofar as Foucault thinks that Lévi-Strauss's distinction is useful, but it is only scratching the surface here of understanding how these mechanisms work. How does a society actually become comfortable with the act of putting someone to death, or of ostracizing someone, or of claiming it can rehabilitate someone. So uh, Foucault suggests that Lévi-Strauss, all, all, all Lévi-Strauss is saying is that there are these possibilities, and Foucault wants to go deeper and ask why. Like, why can a society claim to have the right to do this over someone? So to exclude someone, like if you cast them out of your society, is a sign of a broader set of strategies of power that are meant to do many things. To cast someone out of a society does more than just casting someone out. It confirms the existence of an inside versus an outside, for example, where the outside is the place where the vagrant, the criminal has now been cast to. It confirms the power of power. Those people and institutions that hold power justify their existence by casting people out, for example. Like these are just things uh, we're still scratching the surface, but just to give you an idea of how Foucault is going to take this distinction further. So the discourse of exclusion does a lot of work to conceal these other mechanisms. If we just say exclusion like Lévi-Strauss does, we aren't getting at the core of these other issues. And these other mechanisms really work to create the conditions for people to be excluded in the first place. And it also doesn't identify the specific ways that exclusion is practiced. So being cast out of society, maybe it's a type of confinement as well. Maybe someone is just locked away somewhere, which is a kind of exclusion. Maybe they're um, disallowed from entering certain public arenas, 
maybe they're disallowed from entering churches or whatever, like other religious institutions, and so on. So another word, Levi-Strauss word, words, Levi-Strauss, in identifying these operations of exclusion versus rehabilitation is almost naturalizing these practices instead of considering the actual interests behind them in that they are practiced with the purpose, at least one purpose, of maintaining power, as I've already said. Now, more importantly, I think that the split between assimilation and neutralization forgets how they blend, where Levi-Strauss says, you know, some people are excluded or some people are rehabilitated, and he distinguishes the two. Foucault is a little bit more reticent to believe that there is such a neat divide, where he says that, like in psychiatric hospitals, people who are considered mad or um, mentally ill, they undergo a neutralization insofar as they are being assimilated back into the social body. So people who, you know, don't need any real medical attention, like for a long time, being gay meant you could be institutionalized in so much of the Western world. Being gay meant you could be institutionalized. And so these institutions were actually conducting a kind of neutralization when they tried to employ conversion therapy to make gay people straight. And in that, there is a kind of exclusion. The person is taken away from society, put in an institution, and they are rehabilitated at the same time. So there's a dual effect here. And their old self is being excluded, not to say that conversion therapy works, but if we just... Uh, if we just for a moment imagine a world in which that worked, which it doesn't, the idea behind it, the motivating factor, was to conduct a dual form, that is kind of two-sided form, of rehabilitation alongside exclusion. Now, these sites of power use exclusion to enforce their power and to establish and to concretize a normative system of conduct so that, you know, if you are excluded, it means you have broken some kind of rules. And so by excluding, it confirms that normative system. And it sh uh, the idea is that it would shrink the pool of people who would then further oppose that system or break the rules of that system. Now, in the case of somebody who is considered mentally ill, in the very act of diagnosing them itself, the doctor and hospital or asylum confirms their status as powerful, as superior, as having the ability to diagnose, which just signals that they are not among that camp. They are not mentally ill. They are not a criminal, like in the case of criminality. They then almost transcend the impurities of social life, and they are the ones who can cast judgment on people within social life. Now, throughout the course of these lectures, he's going to be considering these forms of power and how power confirms itself, but also the ways in which logics and the rhetoric of transgression, of opposition, of resistance, have been historically motivated, motivated, have been historically mobilized, not in order to oppose power qua power, or power as power, but instead to just reflect power in order to usurp it with one's own power. So what we see here is not a challenge of power itself, but rather a replication 
and um, replacement of power. Now, throughout the course of the text, in order to engage with these sneakier forms of power, because here we're not talking about uh, a king's rule, in part we are, but we aren't talking about like a, a single authoritarian dictator who's deciding what will happen to people. Instead, he's talking about the way that power comes to infect a social body or comes to constitute any social body and sets up the conditions for people to be excluded or punished in the name of that social body. And they often go unseen. We often don't know how power exercises itself uh, against us. So in order to look at the secret ways or the surreptitious mechanisms of power, he will be looking at the punitive tactics indicative of the, that power. And some of these tactics include exclusion, the act of exclusion. Uh, they include as well the act of recognition. So what we mean by that is recognizing people in, or clumping people into categories so they could be easily recognized. Diagnosing people or branding, branding people uh, in terms of like their dress, for example. And this is going to go down class lines as well as we will see. Uh, also, actually physically marking people, the act of like branding them or staining someone's name by, you know, besmirching someone's name if they commit a crime, say that, you know, their whole family is no good then. And this rumor, this idea then comes to spread through the social body, which just works to further exclude them, to further punish them. And then there's the tactic of confinement that all it does, as it suggests, is takes someone away from society without totally excluding them, without casting them out into the outside. It's an outside within the inside. It's a way by which somebody is taken away from society while remaining within that society. So to be clear, and to go through those again, because I feel like I've been going fast, the first punitive tactic is exclusion. Simple enough. The second one is recognition, what he calls as well redemption, that is acknowledging people in their status in the eyes of the state. So they are someone who owes a debt, somebody who has been kind of marked in terms of their class, and so they can be easily managed. The third one is actually physically marking people or just ruining their name, right? Just completely giving them no, um, no option to keep living easily in that society. And then finally, there's confinement. Now, these punitive tactics, as he's just presented them, are incredibly abstract. We haven't talked about anything really concrete yet. I've given examples, but he's not talking about specific examples. I've, I've been vague, and so has he. Now, in them being abstract is just an opportunity to then hone in on what each of they mean uh, and what each of them can represent in the real world. And that we can understand real forms of punishment, like administering a fine, giving someone a fine. And we can understand that act of fine giving through each of these tactics. So for example, if someone is given a fine, it is a form of exclusion because it is the act of taking away someone's property or wealth which is a sign of taking them away from uh, themselves, taking them away from their ability to participate in society. Secondly, 
if someone owes a fine, they are very much hyper-visualized in the eyes of the state, and they're going to have to pay that fine back. And they are going to then occupy what he calls in the form of recognition or, or redemption. They then have to pay it back by virtue of the fact that they have been marked by that society. They are, they are hyper-visible in that society. Now, the third one, the actual almost physical act of marking, is to pay a fine uh, or the act of paying a fine is to bow down to the state and to be fundamentally marked by it as a subordinate within that system. So sometimes fine uh, would be someone's life where their fine is to be put to death, which just confirms the power of the state. And fourthly, confinement, uh, that is you're paying with time in the form of a fine. When you uh, have to pay a fine back, if we think about classic political economy, your time is what is required for you to actually make money. You have to work to earn money, which is just then a stand-in for the amount of time that you spent working on something. So if you have to pay a fine, think about that process in reverse. You are giving up money, which is like you having given up time that you spent. You're giving away your time life back to, or to somebody else. And that is taking away from you uh, as to who you are, or you're simply put to death. Uh, that's your fine and you're confined in that way. So these punitive tactics are just good to keep on the back burner. And they're gonna come up again and again throughout the course of these lectures. But the guiding questions are some guiding questions I guess the guiding question is this. What forms of power are at work for power to respond to infractions that call its laws, rules, and exercise into question with tactics such as exclusion, marking, redemption, or confinement? How does power earn the right, or any institution earn the right through power, with the help of power, to do these things to anyone? And what can we learn by looking at power and these tactics? What can we learn about power itself? Now, the very existence of these tactics reveal power's fragility, which it might seem counterintuitive. But the reason that it signals power's fragility is that they are so punitive and they are so widespread that we must ask that if they weren't enforced, would power crumble? And when we ask this question, and if we actually follow it along where it wants us to go, we start to realize that power doesn't exist through consent. We, we haven't agreed upon it. Instead, it exists through coercion and through the repeated act of enforcing itself on people in ways that suck. It's not fun to be confined. It's not fun to be excluded. And so it confirms itself in that way and is able to maintain itself in that way, not because it is necessarily the best option. And it's important to note that there are always resistances to power. Civil wars have broken out very often uh, in world history where one half opposed the other. There are constantly battles raging between parties within any given social setting. There's always resistance. There's always uh, alternatives that are at play which further signal power's fragility and why it must constantly try to maintain itself in order to keep itself afloat. Or it lets itself fall prey to another system 
that is just going to implement the same power structures because that's all it really wants. So in a kind of, to go off track a little bit, he says that other philosophers have considered civil war differently, where Foucault takes it as an inevitability when we consider power, that is civil war is the sign that power is never like fully uh, established on the basis of consent. Instead, it is done through coercion. Civil war is the response to that because civil war reveals that people are opposing something that they don't agree to. Now, historically, philosophers like like uh, Thomas Hobbes have thought about civil war as a sign of pre-modern life coming back haunting modern life, where he says that before society, before the social contract, people were guided by the logic of war of all against all. You were in a constant, under the constant threat of having your stuff taken away, of being attacked by somebody, and society comes along and gets rid of those fears. It protects us. Now, Foucault is like, are you kidding me? Like, society, in order to do that, is constantly exerting a powerful force, almost like an, as a kind of war. It's always waging war against its citizens in order to maintain itself, how it doesn't happen through consent. And this is something we know from Marx as well, from other thinkers who have very clearly identified that society, social systems, have established themselves through the exertion of force. And that puts us here into chapter two. So the point is to look at the penality, or is to look at penality at the level of its tactics, taking as a point of departure civil war as a general matrix of penal tactics. So when he says this, he suggests that we are always undergoing a kind of civil war. There's always these battles raging. This is why uh, power deploys these penal tactics like exclusion, like redemption, like paying back fines, being marked by the state, uh, actual marking, and then uh, confinement. It is always exercising these tactics because of that threat of the public responding to the war that's constantly be raged, uh, raged against it. Now, between 1825 and 1848, uh, that is in France, there were many changes going on with their penal code, specifically the 1810 penal code, where there were massive civil war-like conflicts between rich and war people, rich and poor people. There were there were so many class conflicts. And if you listen to the previous set of lectures, the lectures on penal theories and institutions, you'll know that that's kind of the centerpiece of the entire series of lectures were the Nupier revolts in France where poor working class or well working class peasant people were opposing taxation that was benefiting surreptitiously, sneakily benefiting the bourgeois and the state. And they were opposing this. And so power had to step in to stifle these revolts, to stifle opposition to these efforts to um, disenfranchise the people. Now, in the changes that occurred in France between 1825 and 1848, and you know before then with the 1810 Penal Code, these reforms reflected the transgressions that the peasant class were posing to the upper classes, to the bourgeois. And so working class interests and peasant populations were seen as being a problem that the Penal Code needed to address. So new laws started to emerge in order to contain that transgressive potential of the lower classes. Now, during this time, infrastructure developed, 
to coordinate people for spectacles, you know, like shows, which you're like, why are you talking about this? It'll be clear. Now, these would be used eventually uh, for surveillance to put the social body under more and more control. That is to increase vision of the people. Because as capitalism developed during this time, really, you know, before this 17th, 18th centuries in Europe, what happened was that there were more and more people who were flocking to cities or to bigger towns in order to become wage earners because their means of providing for themselves were effectively taken away from them. And so this resulted in a need for more and more ways of controlling people that were less cumbersome than just deploying the military to make sure that, you know, the people wouldn't revolt or anything like that. Instead, by establishing surveillance apparatuses, people could be controlled without necessarily having someone there. Now, if you're at all familiar with the text Discipline and Punish, you would know that the other word for this is panopticism. The idea of a kind of all-seeing eye watching people, whether or not that eye exists, who knows, but it's the act of watching people, putting them under surveillance so that they survey and they monitor themselves. So this period of time in France, really the early 19th century, early 1800s, we see four points that we need to analyze, or four phenomena that we need to analyze. The first was the universal state of war between the rich and the poor that were constantly waging because there's so many revolts. There was a penal system that is not universal, but made by one group for another. The upper classes creating the laws to control the lower classes. Third, the universal system of uh, superintendence and surveillance, this new panoptic system to uh, place the people under control to better watch them, and the emergence of a system of confinement at this time. Now, all of this, like, and this is really the key point of Foucault, all of Foucault's texts, is to just demonstrate that the things that we take to be totally normal, rational, like prisons, you know, we grow up, if you grow up in the quote-unquote West, chances are you're, you just associate criminality with going to a prison. When Foucault shows that that is it, totally absurd, that we just make that natural connection, he's not saying that it hasn't historically been used as a kind of punishment, even before this period in France. Like, you can think of so many examples beforehand of people being thrown in a dungeon cell for their whole lives as a kind of confinement. But to implicitly make the connection between criminality and prison or confinement, and to have it be the broad singular form of punishment in our society is like, it demands so much unpacking. And it demands us that we, we it demands that we really interrogate why that happened. Because it's not natural. We aren't born with knowing this connection, but it is certainly uh, instilled within us. Now to just briefly jump back to the point of civil war not being the remnants of a pre-modern time of a war of all against all, as Hobbes says, Foucault suggests that instead we have to consider that it's just, you know, almost a natural product of power being localized and exercised. So for, for Hobbes, the war of all against all implies that there are zero protections. This is pre-state life where people are just, uh, they have to defend them for themselves. No one can really lay claim to anything. You don't have property because someone can just show up and take it. No one's going to take them to court and protect you. So there's always something under threat. 
And there's always the threat that somebody will come and take what you have or take your own life. So as people accrue more power, more means, more wealth, and more knowledge, what happens is there becomes the necessity to protect those things and defend those things and to attain power in the form of sovereignty that other people will respect. So it works not necessarily to encourage people to act a certain way out of their consent, but it works as, as a deterrent. So you accrue enough power that people know not to try to mess with you because that'll mean that they'll uh, you'll probably hit back a lot harder than they hit you. So this will culminate into a sovereign figure, like a king, queen, who's going to contain the power and is going to maintain order. Now for Hobbes, civil war, as a relic of a pre-modern, pre-state time, suggests that civil war breaks out when the sovereign has lost their grip over the social body. However, this idea is silly for Foucault because civil wars are not fought by individuals, but by groups. It's not like a civil war is done where everybody is fragmented and atomized into these pure individual pods and they're all fighting one another. A civil war, by definition, is a group of people, probably with their own sovereign figure, fighting another group of people with their own sovereign figure. So the example of a civil war resonates a lot more with what the state and sovereign life uh, claims to embrace because civil war is the effort to usurp one sovereign with another or one order with another, one set of like power structures with another set. It is not conducted in the sake of returning people to a state of, of pre-state life where there's no power. So again, to bring up the peasant revolts in France between the 15th or through all, uh, all of Europe, between the 15th and 18th centuries, what we see here is not fragmented, divided, atomized people just trying to create chaos. They coalesced into a class, into a group that embraced their own views and opposed the views of another group. And actually in many ways mirrored the repressive tactics of the dominant group by employing their own police figures, by um, conducting executions and trials of people in their own group, which is just a demonstration of what will happen to you if you break these new rules, these, these rules of this new group, this new class. So whenever power is exercised, then civil war is being conducted. It is always in the service of opposing another group. So this is relevant because criminals have often been treated by keeping Hobbes's idea in mind, where Hobbes says that, you know, we've, we've arrived into a social contract, into a society, we have protections, and anyone who breaks that contract, who breaks those protections, then is seen as not enjoying all the benefits society has to offer, they must be punished, they must be cast out, they must be, uh, we, we, or, or they must be fixed to better fit in that society. So criminals and their treatment, or the treatment of criminals, is largely motivated by this idea, not necessarily deliberately, but it reflects uh, the extent to which Hobbes's idea has really infiltrated into, you know, everyday consciousness. So the criminal is seen as having waged a war against society itself, justifying their punishment. 
So for someone to even be labeled a criminal depends on a whole alphabet of institutions that are bestowed authority to diagnose and classify someone's actions as criminal. There's nothing criminal about any action in itself. We, we know and we agree that there are things that people don't do, but this has to have happened through years of successive policies of the imposition of various rules and regulations so that we naturally associate some actions with being evil and some actions with being virtuous. And we'll talk about this more in the later chapters here, but we come to associate deviancy and criminality with being fundamentally evil and its opposites like being a good worker, a hard worker, no matter how exploited you are, as being virtuous. It is a way for you to attain salvation almost. And that puts us here into chapter 3. So to understand how the criminal became to be perceived as an enemy, as like an evil person, evil incarnate to the social body, Foucault analyzes a certain speech from 1789 uh, Constituent Assembly So in, in France. So a guy by the name of Beaumetz said, A crime is committed. The whole of society is injured in one of its members. Public order must be avenged. So in this proclamation, he was addressing and conveying the idea that society can be injured. And that injury is not just felt ephemerally or abstractly at the form of like institutional structures and their, you know, the way that they can conduct themselves. It is actually felt by the people. So the people become synonymous with the social body that, you know, they, what connection do they really have to it? But the criminal in this case then is not just somebody who power opposes, but who everybody opposes. They perceive the criminal's actions as having affected them, as having hurt them. And we can see the roots of this idea in economic law around the same time in the in 18th century. So there were always laws against thievery, for example, like it was for, for a very long time that's been legal. Uh, but when the physiocrats, and I'll explain what that is in a second, when the physiocrats who believed in natural economic laws related to the innate value of land and its yield, once they became a part of legal policy, they changed the concern of economic criminality from a focus on effects of consumption to those on production. And that was seen as being natural and necessary. And I'm going to unpack this in a moment because it's complicated, but just hold on. So stealing or begging for money, being like a panhandler, for example, were like, for a long time, these were considered punishable offenses. You could be cast out or whatever. This didn't matter as much relative to the risk that certain other people would pose to production itself. Okay, so physiocrats were a group of people political economists who, and just workers, who believe that the value of any product, of any commodity, of any form of exchange is found in the actual, like what it can give you from the land, like food, because we all need food. So it, instead of going to like a gold standard to determine the value of something, you know, the physiocrats would say like, how much corn can you get for a shoe or for a couch? And that will signal how valuable that really is because when it comes down to it for the physiocrats, all that really matters 
is how much food and water you can get because that's going to keep you alive. And Marx, uh, other thinkers would problematize these ideas because how do you actually ascertain the value of corn? Which is, you know, we just say, oh yeah, we all need it. But why is it valuable? Unless the implication is that that corn can be transferred into human energy that can then be exploited for human labor, which can then be used to signify the value of other things. So what we see instead, and this isn't relevant to what Foucault says, but what we see in opposition to the physiocrats is an idea really uh, put forward by Marx, or really hammered home by Marx. The idea is that it's not simply as though what the land yields that is the prime determination of value of any given thing. Instead, we must consider it more holistically with labor power and with other metrics of value as comprising more a broad constellation of possible determinants of value. Anyways, okay, so the physiocrats for Foucault stepped into the equation in legal theory at some point in the in France and in, in really in Europe, and they said it is we cannot screw with production because if we do, we're going to die because we need to be producing things in order to earn money to keep producing food for us in order to keep us alive. And that's what matters the most. So their concern was not like petty thievery of stealing like a television. They didn't have televisions back then, but you understand what I mean. They were more concerned with the threats that would be posed to the production process itself. So if someone broke a law or affected the production process, they were then seen as affecting the entire social body, as getting in the way of the social body, that is the entire mass of people that comprise it, of being able to eat and live. So they could then be like, oh, that lazy person over there who's not working, they're going to make it harder for me to live. You know, they aren't just doing their own thing. They're going to affect me. So some basic crimes against production could be like idleness, like not working as hard as you could or choosing not to work. So the vagabond, you know, the person who is the general, uh, was taken as the general matrix of crime, the person who refuses to work, who's itinerant, itinerant mean, meaning that they move around, that they are nomadic almost. They don't have a single place. And so they don't work. You can't sit them down for eight hours and work at, on a production line that's going to produce value in the form of possible food that can be bought for the physiocrats or worked on. And so then what we see is them comprise the vagabonds, other people associated with them, a counter society of which idleness would be one of its elements. Other ones would be like refusing to have kids because that's a slight against humanity. It's seen as like not propelling the human race, not adding to the pool of possible laborers who can provide for people, including others. So being mobile is considered a problem as it constitutes a crime against the economy itself because they can't work. They are also harder to tax, so the state doesn't like them in that way. But it's ironic, of course, in all of this because Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations is very clear that mobility is one of the prime benefits afforded to the workers under capitalism. They aren't chained to any specific place. They're ostensibly free to go where they want, free to go and work wherever they'll make more money. But not too much, though. Because if they move too much, then they are suddenly not productive. So the vagabond isn't just forced into unemployment. They're seen as someone choosing not to work and as just taking and consuming. They're seen as like a leech, a parasite, consuming without giving back. 
And it's important to note that the legislators didn't understand their enemy here. They outlawed begging and banished beggars, essentially creating vagabonds. So a lot of these policies that were quite, um, they were harsh, created the people that they were, that they hated the most. Because if you incarcerate people, if you take away their means to actually provide for themselves, they don't have a, a firm basis upon which to then go to work. They don't have a shelter they can go to, to rest, to nourish themselves, to then go back to work. So they're creating the conditions for the situation that they were opposing to get worse, which is often the case with uh, policymakers and legislators. There's not enough foresight given to many of these decisions to consider the effects of them, long-term effects. So they would also be forced to work, vagabonds and other people. They would essentially be enslaved and branded. Peasants would be armed to defend themselves against vagabonds as well. So if someone chose not to work, they'd be forced to work. Peasants were armed, which I think is a super important point here in this entire text, uh, because Foucault's relationship with gun control and his views of it, in historically, not like this having machine guns, American style type stuff, but having the, the means to defend oneself against an attack or defend oneself against a military that, the, you know, at the time they, it, would, it would actually mean something. In this situation, whereas in the previous set of lectures, here he's suggesting that arming a population was used as a tactic to further power, to intensify the power of the bourgeois and the state. Because if they were to convince the people that the threat to their livelihood was not the state itself or the bourgeois, but was instead vagabonds, and they suddenly gave those people weapons, those people are going to then kill uh, the people who are seen as affecting them. Very much like what was seen in the United States, uh, an appreciation of gun ownership in order to protect uh, suburban white communities from black people entering these spaces. Just one of the examples in which weapons are used not to present a challenge to power, but to consolidate power that already exists, to maintain a powerful status quo. Uh, but in any case, vagabonds would be forced to work. They were under the constant threat of peasants wanting to kill them because they're being branded as being these evil people for peasants and so on. Now, one figure, Guillaume-François Le Tron, was, was one vocal opponent to vagabondage Vagabondage. Vagab is that, I don't even know if that was that's a word. Vagabondage. To being a vagabond. I kind of like it though, vagabondage. Uh, to being a vagabond. But he also recognized that the aristocracy embodied many of the character characteristics he viewed among vagabonds. The aristocracy, they didn't work. They just leached off the system the labor of others. And this is an idea that the bourgeois peddled as well. The bourgeois said, hey, we're creating industry, we're hiring workers, you know, we might even be working as well. The aristocracy, on the other hand, we got to get rid of them. They, they aren't working. We got to overthrow them, which is just a clever trick the bourgeois did to essentially replace the aristocracy with themselves, where they could then not work. So we know how much, how hard the richest people on earth work today. They, uh, they're not exactly working the fields, uh, the farm fields like everyone else or picking corn at 5 a.m. It doesn't happen very often. So there was a siding with peasantry by the bourgeois. Interesting. Uh, that is the majority. 
against the aristocracy and the vagabonds who they view as being leeches, who they view as sucking without giving anything back to the system. And there's a call to arms, a call to insurrection against the aristocracy, against these itinerant vagabonds. So some see that the real enemies are those who oppose the maximize, maximization of production. Anyone who opposes production's processes is seen as being that ultimate threat. And we would see this play out as well in 18th century literature, where the vagabond was an enigmatic, spontaneous, ambiguous, mysterious person. Who was cl and then in the 20th century, or closer to the 20th century, the anti-society figure becomes the sophisticated, uh, becomes more sophisticated. They start to occupy secret clubs, convents, castles with its own rites, rituals, initiations. So at a, there was a point in which like there was a lot of fascination around the vagabond as being this almost like mythically interesting figure, which interestingly, for those unfamiliar, in Foucault's Madness and Civilization, he suggests that the same thing happened with people who were considered mentally insane. They were actually exalted. That is, they were viewed in high regard in their society, and they were seen as being wisdom keepers. But that began to change as they as they began to be institutionalized. They were thrown into previous leper colonies, and that was that was that. Similarly, here the vagabond at one point much earlier in this in this time, that in our time frame, seen as this potentially free figure, someone to aspire to. Then they became someone who was conniving, you know, doing this deliberately, occupying secret clubs and cults being essentially a, a conspiratorial figure that society needed to defend against, which just justified their further prosecution. And yeah, that puts us, that'll put us here into chapter four. We'll stop there for now. Uh, if there's anything I got wrong, anything uh, I miss, I left out, I'd love to hear about it. If you like what I did, like, share, subscribe, tell me what you think. You buy what I say? Am I just trying to indoctrinate you? Maybe. I don't know. Probably. You know, we don't really know our own biases. Uh, but with that being said, if you like what I did, like, share, subscribe, and um, yeah, catch you next time. Take care.